This is Pendust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Every couple has their favorite place. For Margaret and Bernie, it was the popular film world hangout, Hideaway Lounge, a Hollywood watering hole for cameramen, wardrobe mistresses, and carpenters located at the Sunset Inn. Hideaway Lounge is the story of Margaret and Bernie's long marriage, told through a series of nostalgic flashbacks to Hollywood of the 1950s, alternating with the present day. As they near the end of their long lives, the couple hatches a surprising plan and one fateful night, they returned to the Sunset Inn, where they first met 60 years earlier. William Torfey's fiction has appeared in numerous magazines. He is a host and frequent reader at Lit Crawl in San Francisco, where he serves the arts community as an exhibition curator. This story is copyright 2020 by William Torfey. This recording is copyright 2020 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. This is a work of fiction. Hideaway Lounge, written by William Torfey, read by Tom Zingarelli. Bernie Lauer was using his credit card for the last time, intent on leaving a paper trail. The motel manager peered at him oddly. He supposed because the man was wondering why an elderly man with a respectable local address had chosen to check in at the Sunset Inn. He was piebald on top now, white hair hanging in long wisps on the sides and curling around his collar at the back. He looked like a retired conductor or celebrated novelist. Despite his frail, washed-out appearance, one could see he had once been a substantial man, even handsome. Margaret's oncologist had advised withdrawing chemotherapy. His wife's treatment was proving ineffective and compromised her quality of life, the doctor said during the last weeks remaining for her. Bernie spotted the article in the L.A. Times. The Sunset Inn was described as a crumbling relic from Hollywood's heydays, now slated for demolition to make way for yet another mini-mall or fast-food restaurant. The story and accompanying photos included a profile on the film director who planned to use the motel as the set for his latest project before its destruction. He brought the article into the bedroom. As he read the story to Margaret, her face brightened. She grabbed his arm and attempted to sit up. So, our honeymoon motel's getting some attention in its sunset years, she joked, her voice weak, but still spirited and beautiful, Bernie thought. Her hair had turned white long ago, thin now from the chemotherapy, but her face seemed as luminous as it was on that day they first met. She grabbed his hand. 
I want you to listen to what I have to say. He was 24 years old when he arrived at L.A.'s Union Station in 1956, carrying a battered leather suitcase that held a pencil-marked screenplay he labored over during that last year in Milwaukee. He'd arranged to room with his college friend Warren in a two-bedroom apartment on Beechwood, just a few blocks from Hollywood Boulevard. Everything appeared magical and exotic to him, the busy freeways, the dusty palm trees, the feeling that the city stretched on forever as uncontained as his ambitions. The taxi led him off on a quiet block in front of a faux Norman stucco building, complete with turrets at the corners of a steep wood-shingled roof. He walked into a courtyard featuring a gurgling fountain and an abundance of deep green bushes rife with colorful flowers he later learned were fuchsias and bougainvilleas. He gazed out at the Hollywood hills through the open French windows of his tiny bedroom, taking in the hazy hills and fragrant wintertime scents, convinced that he had found paradise. He only had a couple of local productions under his belt. They were variations on Thornton Wilder, working-class family stories that reflected his city's ethos with its unions and socialist mayor. The critic at the Milwaukee Journal had praised them for their convincing truths and strong characterizations that underscored the struggles of the common man. Bernie had turned one of them into a screenplay, not exactly Hollywood material, but substantial writing that might justify getting hired at a studio. Warren was contracted by Warner Brothers and introduced Bernie to a friend of a friend of the assistant to a vice president at Universal Studios. The assistant placed Bernie's screenplay in the inbox of a VP, who, despite the distractions of drink and dames, read it over a weekend in Palm Springs. Warren reported the office conversation to him third-hand. "'Who's this guy Bernie Lauer anyway?' asked the VP, plopping the manuscript onto his assistant's desk. "'He's the new kid from Milwaukee,' she replied. "'He wrote a couple of plays that got decent reviews there. "'Thought I'd have you take a look. I hope you weren't too bored. "'The script will never sell. It's too political. "'But his plotting is pretty good, and the dialogue is strong. "'The boy's got talent. Let's call him in and see what he can do.' "'Bernie couldn't believe his good fortune.' He was a bit dazed to be sitting at a table in the Universal lot tossing story concepts around with half a dozen other hacks for hire, as the cynical writers call themselves. Their project assignment, based on a controversial novel with a strong social message, required much watering down and a different ending if the studio was going to throw any money at it. Rumors galore already surrounded it. Lana Turner, supposedly dating a gangster at the time, was interested in playing the female lead. If she decided to sign, the studio chief would certainly greenlight it. Heady stuff to contemplate for a boy from the hinterlands. Bernie and Warren generally met at the hideaway lounge after work at their respective studios. The bar at the Sunset Inn on Hollywood attracted lesser Hollywood types, writers, cameramen, set technicians, and makeup artists. Entering it was like going into a movie house for an afternoon matinee. It always took Bernie a minute to accustom himself to the dimly lit room after leaving the bright Southern California glare. The hideaway featured a half-pint bar presided over by a very good bartender, small round tables with shaded lamps, and a smart black leather banquette along the back wall provided a cozy nightclub atmosphere. 
You can get a room here if you run across a broad willing to do it, Warren once told him, pointing at a Lothario leaning against the bar and talking up a bleach blonde with too much makeup. Bernie couldn't imagine picking up a girl and checking into a room. Well, he could imagine it, but... It was perhaps his twelfth visit or so. He opened the hideaway's door, Warren right behind him, and he just spotted her. She was holding a drink and laughing at something the bartender had just said. The ceiling fan ruffled her chestnut hair, raising energetic little wisps around a face with the most beautiful complexion he'd ever seen. She was twenty-three or twenty-four at the most, he guessed, but the tremolo of her laughter slightly deep and very clear cast her as older. He surprised himself, boldly striding up to the bar and standing next to her, as if he had no choice. Hey, wait up, buddy, called Warren. Bernie smiled at her tentatively. She stood her ground, no shy deflection, and smiled back. So what'll you gentlemen have, asked Clarence, a consummate professional, not some young actor playing bartender before his big break. Doers on the rocks, ordered Warren. Bernie hesitated. Milwaukee had been a beer town, mostly, but he'd learned that he wouldn't mix successfully in Hollywood ordering a Schlitz. He pointed to the amber-colored concoction she was holding. I'll have what she's having. Warren shot him a glance of approval. His neophyte friend from Wisconsin was putting the make on. Bernie met the woman's eyes, brown and filled with playful amusement. As far as he could tell, she wasn't wearing any makeup. She didn't need it. What are you drinking anyway, if I may ask? Yes, you may ask. It's a Manhattan. She offered her glass. Would you like a taste before Clarence mixes your drink? Warren coughed conspicuously and nudged him with his elbow. Bernie's fingertips brushed hers as he took the glass. The drink was a bit sweet, but it went down smooth, dusky and warm in the throat. He handed it back to her, fingertips beating again, warmth against the glass's cold wetness. Do you like it? Her look of amusement was replaced with something else. He nodded and turned toward the bartender, cleverly inspired by a song. I'll take Manhattan. He turned back to her. Excuse my bad manners. I'm Bernie Lauer. I'm Margaret Wells. It's nice to meet you. She held out her hand, and he shook it. Looks like a handshake, but feels like something else, Bernie thought. Would you like another? Oh, no, thanks, she laughed. One's more than enough for me. I'm happy you helped me out with this one. Margaret made her case quietly, rationally. Bernie told her that he wouldn't even consider it. Her matter-of-fact resolve shocked him. They held hands in silence until she fell asleep. Margaret continued to press him. They weighed the decision for weeks. He broke down one evening, telling her that he might agree with one stipulation. I want to do this with you. It's the only way I can help you. She looked horrified. No, Bernie, you won't. It's me who's dying. He told her that she was everything to him, that life without her was not life at all. You can't be serious, she said. I won't help you if you don't agree. He worked on her every day until he thought he'd convinced her. She would shoot him a look mixed of contrition and appeal. Are you sure you want to go through with this? she asked again and again. I wouldn't blame you if you wanted to bail out. 
I've never been more certain of anything since the day I asked you to marry me. She managed to muster a smile. The pain was terrible, but it had been much worse. A little less pain, and she nearly forgot its sharp insinuations, its set course. He stroked her forehead. We've discussed this from every angle. It's what I want, too. The hideaway lounge was packed by 6 p.m., but they barely noticed. Do you work at one of the studios? Margaret asked. I just started at Universal, Bernie replied. You're a writer. It wasn't a question. How did you know? You look like a writer. You mean I'm not a handsome, well-dressed actor, soon to be a leading man. I mean you look smart and sensitive. Sensitive, maybe. Smart, I'm not so sure. What are you working on? It's only speculative at this point. I sit in an air-conditioned room with other monkeys. We toss around various ideas until we come up with a banana ripe enough for our boss to consider it worth peeling. So I guess you're the monkey who comes up with the bad metaphors. He laughed. You could say that. Their conversation was easy. They deserted the bar and slid past the tables to sit in the corner of the banquette. He needed to find out more about this Margaret Wells, or at any rate, just be with her, swimming in the wake of her voice and its composed buoyancy. She told him that she was an assistant to the president of one of the film workers' unions. The cameramen, wardrobe mistresses, and carpenters they make entertainment in America possible, just like auto workers make it possible for Americans to drive. It was tough, she said, organizing the workers with the anti-communist crusade going strong. This isn't some kind of elaborate recruitment effort, is it? he asked. She gave him a sly look. And what if it is? I joined the union in a heartbeat. Where do I sign up? Her laughter rose above the voices of the cocktail hour crowd. I'm afraid that we don't represent writers. That's too bad. I could change jobs. Oh, yeah? Sure, I'm a pink diaper baby. My dad's a socialist union man and a big supporter of our so-called commie mayor back in Milwaukee. I voted for him just before I blew town. A man after my own heart. She was unbelievable, this Margaret. She didn't wait for cues, but initiated them like she understood his need to be led a little away from his desk and typewriter and made-up stories. A photographer carrying an agifold camera with an oversized flash approached them. She was making her usual rounds of the watering holes, hoping to pick up a couple of good shots for the Hollywood papers, starlit huddles with agent in hideaway, that sort of thing. She recognized Margaret, who often accompanied the head of the union at press conferences. She didn't recognize the guy who wore a suit too heavy for Southern California. Hi, Sally. This is Bernie Lauer. He's a writer at Universal. More a scribbler than a writer, he deferred. Margaret put her hand on his arm. Don't you believe it? He's one of the best in Hollywood, he laughed. I should hire you as my agent. Sally pointed her camera at Bernie. So, what are you working on? Nothing special, he said. The studio had sworn them all to secrecy and would have his head if he let the cat out of the bag. Nothing special, huh? Gee, interesting title. I can't wait to see it. The flashbulb flashed, the cold, bright light bouncing like quicksilver. A photo of Bernie and Margaret appeared on page five of The Hollywood Reporter the next morning. The headline, Margaret's Union on the Boulevard. 
She was smiling at the camera, poised, holding her drink in midair. Bernie was identified as Hollywood's hottest new screenwriter. He looked serious, even a bit irritated by the invasion of privacy, some reading into it that he wasn't pleased to be interrupted while on the make. I remember the good times we had there. Margaret's voice was weak. The tiny lounge, so warm and intimate, it always seemed a surprise to enter it from the street. His gnarled hand touched her shoulder. You were my surprise. She pushed herself up against the headboard, a brief flicker of unexpected energy. You were so shy, straight from the Midwest, and broke, too. And you wore a wool suit in the summer. It was my only suit. She frowned and started gasping. What can I do? I want to help you, but I feel so helpless. She took several deep breaths. I know you do, dear, but I'm tired of needing help. It's only a short while anyway, isn't it? Their first meeting at the hideaway marked the true beginning of his life in California. On their fifth date, Bernie worked up enough courage to ask her if she would spend the night with him there at the sunset. He was surprised by Margaret's response. I thought you'd never ask. Bernie hightailed it to the motel's office, paid for the night, and picked up the key for the last vacancy, room 16. For the sake of discretion, Margaret left the hideaway separately and rejoined him in room 16. He had confessed that he was still a virgin. She led him through a revelatory ritual of stroking, kissing, caressing, and ultimately passionate joining. He felt doubly lucky, his first time and with someone he loved. They became regulars at the Sunset Inn during their courtship. Warren, only half-joking, suggested they choose the motel for their wedding reception. Hey, the rooms at the Sunset are cheap, and you'll find most of the guests drinking at the bar after the ceremony anyway. The Sunset is too small, replied Bernie, smiling. I think Margaret's inviting the entire union membership. His guest list was limited to a few writers from the studio and friends he'd made at the hideaway lounge. In the end, their wedding took place at the Roosevelt Hotel. As Warren had predicted, after the festivities, more than a few guests broke for the hideaway lounge for a nightcap. Bernie and Margaret settled into a small apartment on Ivar that had a sunny patio and a walk-in closet that accommodated his desk. In 1958, Margaret was subpoenaed before the House Un-American Activities Committee. The witch hunters must be getting desperate, she declared. I'm just the Union's glorified secretary. She was never actually called to testify, but a subpoena was enough to make some people, even several friends, keep their distance from her, and by extension from Bernie. Warren's sudden absence hurt Bernie, and he felt a subtle shift at the studio. During his first two years there, he had risen rapidly among the ranks of writers, but he began to feel his stars sinking. Was it due to studio politics or national politics? Had the studio execs decided he didn't have what it took? At least he still had his job. Entering the writer's room one Monday morning, he noticed two vacant seats that had been occupied by guys with whom he traded script ideas on Friday. Where are Max and Joseph, he asked. 
The head writer answered tersely. Their loyalty was called into question, and they were fired. His explanation sounded rehearsed. He complained to Margaret that night. I came to Los Angeles to escape Midwest provincialism only to feel handcuffed in a conspiracy constructed by commie hunters. She scowled. It's called guilt through free association. That traitor Reagan, a quizzling for McCarthy, caving to the fascists years ago. Do you know how many good union people we've lost? Some of the most talented and certainly the most principled. Despite the prevailing uncertainty, they pooled their meager resources and bought a modest house in the Larchmont district, only a dozen blocks from two major studios. Bernie walked to work so that Margaret could commandeer the Buick for her union rounds. Imitation of Life finished production and was released in 1959. As it turned out, Lana Turner starred in the film, which got good reviews from the critics. But its controversial take on class and race relations was too radical for it to be considered for an Oscar. Bernie noticed that his name didn't appear in the credits, but he was proud of his contribution to his very first project. With a small bonus he received, he convinced Margaret they should fly to Europe. In Paris, they discovered a little boite in the Montparnasse district that reminded them of the hideaway lounge. Their astonishment made them feel homesick. On the way home, they took the train up from Chicago to Milwaukee so that Margaret could finally meet his parents. The smart young woman with lefty credentials was a major hit with his folks. Bernie actually felt a bit jealous over the way his dad and mother doted on her. Back in Hollywood, his fears that his early rapid trajectory had leveled off were confirmed when Universal pulled him from script development to edit other writers' work, more often than not half-baked and rudimentary. It's time we have a child, Margaret announced, recognizing the first intimations of his discontent. She was taking the initiative as usual. Emily arrived ten months later. One night, with Emily asleep in her crib, Bernie and Margaret sat at the kitchen table. He was drinking scotch, feeling morose. The studio has condemned me to plugging holes in lame stories. I'd hoped for more. Margaret had seen that the Union's power had been gradually eroded. It may be small comfort to you, but you still have good-paying work, as thankless as that may seem at times. And you have Emily now, and— And I have you, he said. I never forget that. I'm worried about Aaron and Emily. Do you think our letter will help them understand our decision? Do you think they'll be able to forgive us? I don't know, Margaret. You shouldn't worry about that now. She pushed herself up with a groan. We do know how awful it will be for them, though, don't we? It would be terrible for Aaron and Emily. Inexplicable. They had tried to make it easier for them, expressing their love, assuring them that they were fully aware of what they were doing. All the practical and legal matters had been taken care of, and instructions left with their attorney. You know, she whispered, you could still carry on without me. He kissed her on the forehead. No, I couldn't. Bernie was dropped from Universal, which he almost welcomed. He soon found a place at MGM. Margaret, up to her ears in diapers and doctor appointments, missed working with the union. Bernie felt guilty about this and also felt that his creativity was being squandered. 
It was probably the worst time in his relationship with Margaret. He had begun to claim that he had to work late, when in fact he spent most of those late nights in the Los Feliz apartment of one of the young female writers at MGM. The relationship lasted for several months. It wasn't Bernie's last. The blowback from these affairs was predictable, like a sequence of tragic episodes in a film. Margaret discovered matchbooks from the hideaway lounge and several restaurants in his suit pockets, one with a phone number and Shirley written inside the cover. She set it on the kitchen table next to his cup of coffee one rainy morning. You're becoming a Hollywood cliché, Bernie. I suppose the little wife will start finding lipstick stains on your collars and love notes in your pockets next. Her response to his infidelity, with ridicule rather than anger, was the worst kind of reproach. Margaret stood at the kitchen sink, hands grasping the counter. You blame me, don't you? Blame you for what, he asked. For screwing up your career. For being a goddamned commie. You're not a communist. That's not the point. I was implicated. My friends and people I worked with were. That's not what this is about, Margaret. What is it about, then? Not loving me anymore? You know I love you. She picked up the matchbook and threw it at him. I don't know who you are anymore. He stared at his coffee cup. That makes two of us. If you continue with this sad formula plot, you'll have to write me out of the script. She was dead serious. She would cut him off, pack his suitcase, and leave it outside the front door. A week before Thanksgiving, the night before President Kennedy was shot, he was at dinner with yet another young woman. She told him that she shared an apartment with two other girls. He thought of taking her to the Sunset Inn, but instead he sent her home in a cab. That night he asked Margaret for forgiveness. The months after Kennedy's assassination were dark. Margaret was devastated. She had worked in Jack Kennedy's campaign in 1960 and had met President Kennedy and his brothers several times at the Biltmore. Despite the unresolved rift in their marriage, she turned to Bernie for support. That's when he had to do a deep reckoning. He decided to give up screwing around. Despite the shocking loss, the country, and Hollywood along with it, was changing, in part due to the younger generation that Kennedy had inspired. Films, mostly breezy romantic comedies and musicals in the 1950s, were again taking on more controversial subjects. Bernie was in demand, working on a film adaptation of Tennessee Williams' Night of the Iguana, the love life of the film's male star and Elizabeth Taylor was a media sensation, and the film was a hit. Other projects, including gritty treatments of contemporary life, came for him in quick succession. Aaron, their second child, was three years old when they discovered they could afford a nanny. Margaret had waited a long time to return to union work. She informed Bernie that he would have to carry his weight at home, which he discovered wasn't all that bad. One day, he proposed a short vacation. Let's go to the Sunset Inn for a weekend. Margaret laughed. Why not Santa Barbara? Bernie hugged her. You know why. They packed a bag and informed the nanny that they would return on Sunday evening. The bar at the hideaway lounge had been closed for some time, boarded up now with a neon sign dark. Bernie had reserved room 16. The manager had mixed up their booking, but arranged to exchange reservations with an out-of-town reservation. The room's definitely seen better days, declared Bernie. 
The drapes were worn and the towels thinner than he remembered. They laughed it off and, inspired by the memory of their first year together, spent most of the weekend in bed. The manager gave him a sly smile when Bernie returned the key to the office. I hope you enjoyed your weekend. My wife and I met here at the hideaway lounge. That was before my time. The bartender made the best Manhattans in L.A. Nothing lasts forever, right? Bernie eased Margaret out of their bed. She sat at the long-abandoned vanity, brushing her hair and putting on a bit of makeup. She directed him to find the dress in the back of the closet. I kept it. It's the one I wore for our wedding. Remember? He helped her with the tailored woolen suit and peach tones, now several sizes too large for her shrunken body. Bernie drove to Hollywood, holding Margaret's hand. The sunset inn had fallen from grace. Bernie spotted several men, day laborers, he thought, entering and leaving the door where the hideaway lounge had once been. He didn't recognize the manager, a man whose dour demeanor matched the motel's dreary appearance. When he returned to the car, one of the day laborers kindly asked if he could help him move Margaret from the car. Bernie thanked him but shook his head. He needed to do this by himself. The room where they had spent their first nights together had certainly aged along with Bernie and Margaret. Its sagging curtains, stained carpet, the astringent smell of disinfectant hiding the odor of mildew made him hesitate. Had they made a mistake? He helped Margaret settle into the bed. She smiled at him before he returned to the car to retrieve the suitcase. It was nearly empty, just bedclothes, a shaker of Manhattans, and the pills. He tucked a few twenty-dollar bills under the lamp base for the maid, who might be the first to find them. In their letters to Emily and Aaron, Bernie and Margaret emphasized that they were not despairing. We met sixty years ago and knew we were destined to spend our lives together. It was miraculous, really, how we found one another. We've decided to take our leave where we began our lives together. We love you and are very proud of both of you. Margaret was clearly in great pain. He tried to make her as comfortable as possible, propping up her head with pillows so that she would better be able to swallow. He counted out the pills, two neat pyramids piled on the table, and then, hand-shaking, carefully transferred them to plastic cups. That night, the Sunset Inn's blinking sign went out, one of the last original neon signs in old Hollywood. On the boulevard, traffic streamed from stoplight to stoplight. Girls and hustlers posed on the sidewalks. Tourists wandered from block to block, eager to discover sights, living on the fumes of former glamour. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction 
Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.